Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, if you uh, have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to 1 John. If you don't, uh, there are hardbacks in the seats in front of you, and it will be on the screen as well. 1 John is where we're going to be at and where we have been for a while, and we've more specifically been in chapter 3. If you remember, chapter 3 starts with a celebration of adoption into God's family. See what kind of love the Father has for us, that we might be called children of God, and so we are. And so verses 1 and 2, as you're turning there, I'm just recapping Start with a celebration of adoption into the family of God. And the rest of the chapter, from verse 3 onward, talks about characteristics of all family members. Thank God that we are a part of God's family. Knowing that we are a part of God's family, what characteristics then should we expect to see in our lives and the lives of those around us? So, if you're kind of an outliner like I am of the text, verses 3 through 10 are that first characteristic on righteousness. All members of God's family are to live righteous lives. That's verses 3 through 10, and 10 is kind of that pivot point. And from 10 to 24, that's the rest of the chapter, talks about the second characteristic of all family members, and that is love. Specifically, love for other family members. In God's family. All of God's people are to be loving. And so today we're going to spend some time on this first characteristic. As you'll see, the title of today's sermon is The Righteous Christian. The Righteous Christian. And I mentioned it last week that it's kind of redundant to say that. Because an unrighteous Christian. It's kind of like a married bachelor or a three-sided triangle, a three-sided circle. (laughs) Hopefully all your triangles are (laughs) three-sided. But it's like a a three-sided circle. You don't have an unrighteous Christian. You just have an unrighteous man. So all of God's people are to be righteous. That's verses 3 through 10. And so today I want to read verses 3 through 10 to you just to set the context. And I'll walk through this in just a minute, but if you have a bulletin, I actually have a handout for today's sermon. You'll find it helpful maybe later. If you don't, don't get frantic. It's okay. It's just a normal sermon for you, Um, and you can follow along nonetheless. But if you do have a bulletin, grab that insert, and we're going to be looking at it in just a minute. It might be just additionally helpful for you. So starting in verse 3, this is the first characteristic of all of God's children, righteousness. Starting in verse 3, it says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Which That last part leads into next week's the second characteristic. But today we're going to be talking about righteousness. And if you have that bulletin insert, don't expect this every week from me. Okay? Just so you know, don't come to me next week. Where's the insert? Where's the handout? Where's the notes? Okay? Because, but today I, I thought it might be a little helpful for you. Because John geniusly laid out this passage, the one that I just read, specifically verses 3 through 9, in such a way that is... Truly amazing. And it took me a long time to see it, okay? So um, it's a little complex. That's why you have the handout. But I really think that there's one central desire for John, for the reader, for you and me to really comprehend, and that is centered right in the very middle of the passage. We just read verses 3 through 10. The very middle, smack dab in the middle, is verse 7. And he says, Little children, do not be deceived. That's right in the middle. Don't be deceived. And that's John's great concern is that we would not be deceived. And so before verse 7, he gives four truths about righteousness so that we will not be deceived. And then after verse 7, he repeats those same four truths in Slightly different words. To really drive home those four points. So right in the middle, do not be deceived. Before the middle, he says, gives four points so that you won't be deceived. And after the middle, he says the same exact four points in slightly different ways. His deep burden for you. Please hear this. And my deep burden for you. And in, in reading this and soaking up this passage is that you won't be deceived or misled about sin and righteousness, holiness and right living. That you would understand it well. It's relationship with your walk with God, your salvation, that you wouldn't be misled about what righteousness is and isn't to be in your life. I don't want you to be deceived about that because there's, there's so many areas in our lives. There's so many areas in our lives where deception and misunderstanding take place. It's everywhere. In the church. Theologically, I mean, you can just look the, the so many questioning the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. Which, if that foundation crumbles, everything else does. But there's a lot of deception about that topic, about the nature of Christ. But then even practically, right? Sexuality and, and marriage. 
There's a lot of deception out there that's penetrating the church. And righteousness and holiness is, is no exemption. There's a lot of deception and a lot of confusion and a lot of misleading going on even in the church, regarding your righteousness and your call to holiness. Just think about it with me. Relate with me, maybe, so I'm not the only one that feels this way or has felt one of these ways before. But on the one hand, okay, on one, one side, there are those who are wrestling with sin. And then, Therefore, questioning your salvation because I'm not living up to the mark that I think I should for a Christian. You ever been there? Wrestling with sin. Not living up to the righteousness that you expect of yourself and therefore questioning your salvation. And maybe you shouldn't be. And yet on the other side, there are those who are embracing their sin and yet have no concern about their salvation because, hey, Jesus' grace is abundant. And they really should be concerned about their salvation. Both sides are misunderstanding righteousness and what holy living gets you or doesn't get you. And then, of course, there's this third party, those who think that they're right with God just because they can look around at their peers and say, I've got it together better than them. If anyone's right with God, it's me. Do you see, all three are misunderstanding righteousness and holiness and what it does and what it doesn't do. And of course, it's not just personal confusion, but there's even a collective confusion amongst the church regarding righteousness and holiness when it comes to holding each other accountable. Right, so have you ever heard this line of thought. God is the final judge, which he is. We answer to him on the last day, which we do. Therefore, it's not my business what they're doing. You ever heard that? You ever said that? There's a lot of confusion about how righteousness should be upheld collectively within our body. Or this line of thought, we, we all sin. And all sin leads to hell. My sin is no better than their sin. All true statements. Therefore, I have no right to call out their sin. Right observations about sin leading to wrong actions. You are to call out sin. You are to address sin. But there's so much misunderstanding about righteousness and sin and holiness. Not only personally in our own salvations, but also collectively in how we're to hold each other accountable. There's a lot of confusion about righteousness in the church today. And John's great concern and my great concern is that you won't be deceived in any of those ways. And so he gives four truths and repeats them. Four truths about righteousness, to guide us and therefore protect us from deception that the world is going to offer you. 
and even wolves in the sheep will, or wolves in the church will offer you. Four truths to protect you from deception, okay? And that's on the back side of the handout if you've got that. The first truth that we see is that my righteousness should imitate his righteousness. My righteousness, whatever I am to do to be righteous, should imitate and mirror his righteousness in what we see in God in his word. We can see that in verses 3 and the last part of verse 7. Again, he repeats it, right? Centered on that first part of verse 7. So firstly, he says, everyone who thus hopes in him, that's Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. And then again in verse 7, slightly different language, same point, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Yes. As he is righteous. Do you see? Our purity should match his purity. Our righteousness should be based on the standard of his righteousness. This is essential because if righteousness and purity is subjective and based on what you think it is, and what I think it is, no one's to say what is righteous. And no one is to say definitively what is pure. You see, one deception that's in the world today that might even have you gripped today is that you can say what's good and someone else can have a different understanding of what's good. And you're not to challenge that. That's wrong. Because, you see, Words like good or phrases like the right thing to do. They're not relative to each person. They're not subjective to each person or to each circumstance. It's not based on the person that you're talking to. It's not that it works for you, but this works for me. No, 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 no. God defines what is right and good for you and for me and for everybody. He defines it. He sketched it in stone with his finger. It's not up for debate, and it never changes. In the spirit of sports today, you know me, sporty Isaac. Um, <laughs> tell you an analogy in sports, you see, I, uh, I used to play what I would call the masculine sport. Others would call the hobby of soccer. And, uh, and so I used to play that. And I remember one time I, I told my coach, tried to do his job for him, you know. And, uh, and maybe you've done this before in your own sport. Uh, but I came up and I was like, coach, look, what would really work is if I ran up the side and I did this and I'm trying to like explain like a different formation in, in the plan and strategy of our team. And, uh, and he just looked at me like, <laughs> like I'm going to try to respect you because I'm a professional right now, but get out there on that field and do what I tell you to do. <laughs> like, and I, all it took was the look, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to go and, uh, and just, I just kind of turned around and, and just like walked away. And like, wait, that was the last of that conversation. And I just did it his way. Um, and so I, I think about that whenever I think about 
this. Because it's not my way when it comes to purity. It's, it's not, hey, God, how about, how about though this situation? How about we do that? And, and actually, I, I know that you said, but see, the thing is, God, in this, in this circumstance, um, I think it's a little different because, hear me out, right? It, it's none of that, right? Do you want a pure marriage? It's Jesus' way. Do you want to stand up for what is right? It's what Jesus decides is right. And if you choose something else to stand up for, if you want something else to define what purity is, you have a false purity. And so this is the first truth that John gives us, is that our righteousness, your righteousness, should be based on and imitate his righteousness. Seek purity as he is pure. Seek righteousness in the way that he is righteous. He is the standard and he is the definition. The second truth that John gives us, so those were in verse 3 and verse 7, now it's verse 4 and 8. The second truth is my righteousness matters. My righteousness matters. We can see that in verses 4 and 8. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then in verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning, it's the same phrase, slightly different what he's saying. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Listen, your righteousness matters. It matters whether or not you are practicing sin. It matters. And that's important to say because there are lies penetrating the church that would say, His grace is abundant. Live how you want. Listen, your righteousness matters. And so, if you call yourself a Christian and you see holiness as unimportant, can I just speak some very critical truth to you in a loving way? Grace is the full story of your salvation. Amen. But it's not the full story of your Christianity. Grace is the full story of your salvation. It started out grace, and it will end in grace, how you're getting to heaven. It is grace all the way, but it is not the full story of your Christianity. If a holy life is not important and an essential part of your Christianity, you have a false Christianity. Look at what John is saying here in verses 4 and verse 8. Look at, firstly, who he's talking to. He says in verse 4, everyone. Now, I know my wife's the accountant, and I'm not, but I usually can do okay on simple math. Everyone, I think, normally means 100%. Yes? Everyone, i.e., 100% of the people who practice sinning. That's who he's talking to. And then also in verse 8, whoever practices sin. So, summary of who he's talking to, anyone and everyone who practices sin, 
You see that? Anyone and everyone who is practicing sin, what does he say to anyone and everyone who practices sin? You're living in lawlessness and you're born of the devil. So, to summarize John's own words in these two verses, anyone and everyone, that is 100% of people who practice sin, are unsaved. Now, that can sound scary, can't it? If you're a sinner like me. Which I am. A sinner saved by grace. But that can sound scary. So what does John mean? Well, he doesn't mean that Christians will never sin. Okay? It's not what he's saying. In fact, that would go against his very own letter. And, and you don't have to turn there. Let me just read it. It's not going to be on the screen, but 1 John 1, 8. You have to remember, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Okay, so John has that in mind when he says, if you make a practice of sinning, you're of the devil. John isn't saying that Christians have to be perfect and they never sin. That's not what John is saying. He has to be saying something different. So what John is saying is that Christians don't practice at their sin. Now look at me, Super Bowl Sunday, and I'm going to give two sports analogies. So, and it was perfect what Lisa had mentioned in children's time today. But this is true in sports, right? You practice at your sport so that you might get better at it, so that you might progress in your craft and excel in your position, you practice at what you want to grow in. You get better at it. He says, you know, Christians don't do that with sin. If you do, you're, I love you, but you're not a Christian. You see, Christians don't practice at, work at progressing their sin. It's the second truth that he gives that your righteousness matters. Now that's balanced out with this third truth that he says in verses 5 and verse 8 again. That is, your righteousness is not enough. Yes, your righteousness matters, but on the other side of the coin, my righteousness is not enough. It matters, yes. It's not enough. Let's look at the verses He says here, verses 5 and the last part of verse 8, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. See, Christ appeared to take away your sin. And then in verse 8, he says something very similarly, just slightly different words. He says the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what did Christ come to destroy? Sin. You see, your church, your your righteousness is not enough because Christ had to come and do what you can't do. Jesus coming to die for your sins and my sins teaches us a few things. Firstly, a few things. Firstly, that Jesus hates sin. And he takes it very seriously. I don't think that's said enough. Is that crazy? That that's not said enough? 
Jesus hates sin. He showed it by what he did. He refuses to ignore it, to sweep it under the rug. He says, I can't cancel it out and just act like it wasn't there. Can't just say, look, as long as you balance out at the end of life, if your good outweighs your bad, I'll call it good. He can't do that. He sees the blemish and he says, I got to do something about that. So, because he only accepts 100% perfection out of you and out of me, he does. Because none of us will ever achieve that. He left heaven. He lived the perfect life for us. He died the sinner's death for us anyway. All because he can't stand the sin. You see, he appeared in order to take away sin. The devil's been sinning from the beginning. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He hates sin. And he has to do something about it. But we also learn in Christ's coming that your righteousness does not meet his standard. Right? He wouldn't have come if it did. Your righteousness is not enough. If your holiness was enough to justify you before God, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. But the humbling truth is that Jesus came, he lived, and he died, not because your neighbor's sin, but because of your sin and what you do daily and what I do daily. Christ didn't come because your neighbor isn't living up to the standard of your lifestyle. No, he came because your lifestyle doesn't meet his standard. Your righteousness matters, but hear me, it's not enough. I don't care who you are. Mine isn't enough. But you know what's really encouraging about Christ's coming and dying for sin? It teaches us that, and maybe somebody needs to hear this, it teaches us that your sin can be broken in your life today. And if you're a Christian, it has. You see, I think some of us feel like the we feel the weight of the inev- inevitability of sin, and it's crushing. We just can't get ahead of it. But Christ came to do that for you. You see, if you feel gripped by your sin, and I, and I don't know everyone's story here, but maybe you need to hear this. If you feel gripped by the sin that you're living in right now, The grip is unbreakable. Only in the work of Christ on the cross. It is though. It is though. If you feel trapped by your sin, like it's chains wrapped around you and you're inside a cage and there's no change in the sin that you just have been fighting for years, if, you, if that's you, just hear me. Your sin is escapable. Only through the work of Christ on the cross. It's not in your white-knuckling it, working really, really hard, setting up all the boundaries, though that's good. It's only found in his appearing and dying and raising for your victory. So John felt the need to say that. Your righteousness does matter, but it's not enough. Christ had to come. Last point is 
my righteousness is evidence of my relationship with God. It is. And the flip side of that is also true. Your embracing of unrighteousness is evidence of your not having a relationship with God. Look at verses 6 and verse 9. Again, same point, repeated in slightly different words. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. No one. And then verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John uses some pretty definitive words here, doesn't he? If you notice in verses 4 and verse 8, he says, everyone and anyone who sins, right? So 100% of people who practices sin are of the devil. And here he says, no one, again, not the accountant, but no one means 0%. No one who is a Christian will practice sin. Whoa, John. You sure you don't want to give a little bit of wiggle room with your language there? Right? Like, just how about you just slow down with the pin strokes, sit back in your recliner, and think about what you just wrote, John. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John says, no one who abides in him, no one who is born of him, keeps on sinning. And again, just like verse 6, this can be very misunderstood. Just like verse 4, sorry. This can be very misunderstood. I remember uh, in high school, I had, a, I had a desk in my room, and uh, I had a little notebook like just a small one and I used to write down bible verses on it and rip out a page and tape it to the wall in front of my uh, my desk in my room just to remind me of God's word and just think about it and and uh, and so my wall there in front of my desk was just littered with over 50 little pages notebook pages with a bible verse written on it and slapped up there with tape And I remember vividly sitting there in that gray cloth upholstery chair at my desk, sitting back, putting my arms on the armrests, looking at that and crying. Because I didn't think I was a Christian. Because I sinned. I doubted I was a Christian. Because I saw evidence of sin in my life. What do I do with that, John? No one who abides in God keeps on sinning? I think this can be very misunderstood in what John is saying. Again, John is not saying that Christians will be morally perfect. And you might need to hear that just as I needed to hear that. Again, let me, and you can look at it this time. I think it'll be on the screen. Look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And just allow this to, to complement, not contradict what we just read. 
He says, chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, okay, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Now, add to that chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, so remember that when we now look at this passage again in verse 6. He isn't saying that you have to be free from all sin in your life. Or that we are expected to in order to have a relationship with God. No, what he is saying is that those who abide in God and those who know him are committed, are committed to not progressing in their sin. They're committed to fighting it. Do you see that? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And he's also saying that those who are truly born of God, they refuse. And in fact, they're unable to practice at their sin, to grow in it and get better. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In fact, he cannot keep on sinning. See, the true Christian has, this is encouraging to you as you wrestle with your sin, the true Christian has a new life, a new spirit, a new character. You have these things which practicing sin is incompatible with. And therefore, the true Christian will be repulsed of sin, will flee from sin, and will take extreme measures to kill that sin which exists in him. That's what true Christians do. They hate it. And they will take whatever measures necessary to kill it. And that's why Jesus says, pluck out the eye, cut off the hand. That's what my people do. So, my burden for you, church, is that you would not be deceived about righteousness, what it does and what it doesn't do in your life. Let me just say again, your righteousness is not enough. It's not enough. We'll never measure up. We need grace. But your righteousness still matters. Grace isn't the whole story, right? It's the start of the story, but it's not the whole story. Your righteousness still matters, and your righteousness, as you pursue it, should imitate his standard of righteousness, his definition of righteousness. You don't get to pick what it looks like. We look to Jesus for what it is. And that righteousness which you are pursuing in light of him is evidence of your relationship with God. It's not a ticket to have a relationship. It's evidence of that relationship. So let us respond to this today by singing. If you, if you don't know Jesus, I'd love to talk to you about all of this and what all this means. There will be people up here. If you need prayer for anything, 
Christian, not Christian, wherever you're at, wherever you're at in your life, if you need prayer up here, there will be people up here that would love to pray with you. But let's respond to this uh, today in, in singing. Let me, let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 